How's everybody doing this morning? Yeah, all right. Well, can I, can I just be honest? Uh, for me, it's been a rough few weeks. <laughs> uh, do you know, uh, I mean, just being, yeah, just being completely transparent. I, with my, with my uh, grandmother dying and going back to bury her, uh, with all the stupid car trouble that we've been having, and I mean, I could just, I could stand up here and name you all the things going on in my life, but like, it's been a rough few weeks. And, and if I'm honest, I knew I was preaching again. It's been a while since I've preached, but I knew I was preaching again uh, for today. And so when I got to the passage, I was kind of going like, okay, God, please just let it be a word of comfort for me. And, you know, maybe a word of comfort for everybody else. Let this just be exactly what I need. And then, to be honest, I read the passage and I was like, seriously, God, like, you give me like this weird, like, I don't even know what's going on. We've got Jesus cursing fig trees. We've got, you know, like, you know, you're kind of like, oh, man. Like, that's not what I wanted. And, and yet, as I sat with the text, this weird, confusing, seemingly depressing text, I found God speaking to me. And it really is one of those things, I think, the more that we meditate on Scripture, and what I mean by that is not emptying my head, but the more that I fill my head with Scripture, meditating on God's Word, the more God can speak to us through his word. And honestly, I found, I found it deeply helpful, this passage. As weird as it seems on the surface, as crazy and odd as it seems on the surface, it ended up being a hopeful message and exactly, I think, what I needed. And I, and I hope that this morning for you, it's exactly what you need as well. Um, so let's go ahead and uh, let's, let's get into the, the passage this morning. As we prepare ourselves, I think it's good to just kind of, kind of look at our own context, but kind of look at like, the bigger picture of, of the Bible before we start to zoom in to Mark's gospel here and what, what Mark is trying to communicate to us, what Jesus is communicating to us here in, in Mark's gospel. And here's, here's what I think. As people... You and I were created to experience the divine. That's what we were created for, right? Think back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, right? We have this picture of a garden. We have this picture of, of Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden, experiencing the divine, like, you know, walking next to them, talking with them. God walking with them, talking with them. You have this picture of heaven and earth together, perfectly, seamlessly, right? You have this picture of, of what God sees as perfection, what God sees as perfect peace, of shalom, of wholeness, of completeness. This Adam and Eve, they walked in the garden and they had peace with God. They had peace with each other. They had peace with the creation. And they had peace with themselves. There was perfect peace. And what we find is that Genesis 1 and 2, this is God's heart. This is God's vision. This is what God wants. And if you know the story of the Bible... Right? By the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, which is like what? Nearly like page 2 or 3 of the Bible will say. You have a snake or, or, you know, coming in and saying, did God really say, don't eat that fruit? Do you know what it really is? God's holding out on you. 
And Adam and Eve believe that lie, and they eat the fruit. And from that point on, really you have Genesis you know, 4 to 11, which is a wild part of the Bible that we won't go into, but really what it's trying to communicate to us is that human beings, ever since that moment in Genesis 3, have been walking, as, as John Steinbeck puts it in his famous novel, East of Eden. Human beings have been walking east of Eden, away from God. And sometimes it's been walking, but other times it's just been a complete sprint. And so though we were created to live in a world that is bigger than ourselves, to experience the divine, to not be the center of the universe. So that's what we were created for, to make God the center of the universe. That's how we work properly. The story of humanity has been this long walk or run away from God. In God's good world, heaven and earth were meant to be one, not separate, but as human beings we have put a chasm in between ourselves and God. And so, this story is the same story that leaves many of us feeling lonely. It leaves many of us feeling like alone, while at the same time being the center of our universe. <laughs> lonely and alone as the center of our universe. We have that feeling, and I think sometimes we feel, we, you know, we're able to distract ourselves with other things, but so often we have that feeling like there must be something more. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Even if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been a follower of Jesus for, for your whole life. You've experienced that at some point where you found yourself, man, I've gone the wrong way. I'm chasing after other things. Like, I want to know God better. You know, I mean, I know for myself personally, I came to that moment where I was like, I was a Christian and I'd been a Christian for a long time, but I was like, no, I want to know Jesus. And I mean, really know Jesus, experience Jesus. I'm tired of just kind of halfway doing this. Like if, if, if Jesus says he came to give life and life to the full, that's what I want. And I want to pursue that. But so often I can be tempted by other things. And so we find ourselves feeling like there is more, but maybe even sometimes, for some of us, maybe even not even sure what that is. Like, what is that something more? We want to know there's something more, but we struggle to think, what could it be? And so meanwhile, we end up trying to fill the void or to distract ourselves from that not desire and that need with all kinds of things. Whether that be shopping or eating, or partying, or politics, or sex, or friends, or cat videos on YouTube, like any number of things, right? Sports, like we could name whatever it is for ourselves that we find as distractions when we are alone with our feelings. <laughs> you know what that is. But all of those things really boil down to consuming. It's making myself the center of the universe and consuming something for my own gratification, right? And that tends to be the way that we go. Transcendence, trying to ignore it or to experience it through self-centered consuming and promotion. And though I think we can't always articulate that in the moment, right? 
I mean, let's be honest, most of us aren't sitting around that self-reflective in the moment when we're down and pressed thinking, why am I eating this tub of ice cream? You know, like, that, that, that's not what's happening, right? And so often I think we can't articulate it, but these things, they fill a void for something that feels like it's missing. We resonate with, and I cringe to quote Bono, but like we resonate with Bono, right? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And maybe, again, that's it. Like you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you have found that thing, but yet you still find yourself so often drifting. We catch ourselves in that same predicament, looking to other things to satisfy what only God can give. Because here's the thing, and this is where I've been going with this whole thing. You and me as human beings... We need to know that we are known by God. We need to know that we are known by God and that we can know God. We need to experience Him in order to truly fill this this void. Right? And this is not new. Okay? So again, we come back to Genesis. Right? And we think about all the, the stuff, all the running from God that happens in the book of Genesis. And then we come to the next book, right? So after Genesis, in our Old Testament, comes the book Exodus. And in there, what we find is we find a God drawing near to a group of people. He says, Israel, you are going to be my people. But you're not just my people for the sake of you. You are my people for the sake of the world. Right? That was always the intention of Israel. They were to be a light to the nations. That's how Isaiah puts it. They were to show the world what God was like. And so God said, if you're going to do that, you're going to need my presence. So I'm going to give you my presence. And it's not that I'm not everywhere and I can't be anywhere. And it's not that I can be contained, but I'm going to give you a tabernacle that's then going to become a temple where my presence will dwell. All right, and and just trust me, all of this is important (laughs) as we come to the passage. I'm not just like going off on a tangent here. Right? But God says, my presence will dwell in a unique and special way in the temple. Okay? So let's go to the garden. God uniquely dwelt in the garden and humans messed it up. So God says, here's a temple. And it's kind of like a little Eden. And that will be the place where heaven and earth once again meet, where you can come and you can experience me in a unique way. My presence will be there. You'll be able to feel it. You'll be able to experience it. It will be tangible. Heaven and earth back together in this one spot. And as the people of Israel, as you experience that, you go out into the world and you show the world what God is like. You show the world like what true flourishing, what it means to be truly human, what it means to live under the lordship of Yahweh, right? And that's, that was the story of Israel. But what we find throughout the Old Testament as we keep going forward is that so often the people failed to do what they were called to do. They failed to live as they were called to live. And we can be hard on them, but let's be honest, so have we, right? But they failed. And so often, even there, and Jesus is going to quote from Isaiah 57, and he's going to quote, um, you know, when when we read, sorry, I'll just, I'll just read it here. Uh, In verse 17, he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer to all the nations. That's Isaiah 56, 7. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. That's Jeremiah 7, right? The prophets, Jeremiah 7, 11. The prophets came when Israel had messed everything up. The prophets came and they said, guys, like this is what prophets do, right? They say, guys, 
You're going the wrong way. Turn. This is the way to go. Here's all the things you're doing. Here's all the things you should be doing. Let's start doing those things, guys. What do you say? And it's usually like, no, we're going to kill you. Okay, that's, that kind of is the story of the prophets. That's what ends up happening. That's the story over and over and over. Or, you know, we're not listening to you. That, you know, it's, it's, that's kind of the way things tend to go. But in Isaiah, he predicts that, the, that, or he says that the temple, the way it was always meant to be, was it was to be a house of prayer for all the nations. Everyone was invited to come and to worship God. But Isaiah and Jeremiah also critique that. Like Jeremiah says it's a den of thieves. right? It's a place where people who are, are thieves hang out. And the critique then is that they have been people who are anything but the type of people where their place would be a welcome place for everybody and a house of prayer for everybody. Instead, they are unjust. They are putting down those who, who are struggling. They are, putting, they are keeping down those who are downtrodden, the, the outcast, the foreigner, all of those people. None of them are welcome, and God is angry. Okay? That's what Jesus is quoting there. All right? So God gave the people a temple to be this space. And here's what we find. God has always wanted to meet with his people and to, to, know, to be known and to know. This has been his desire from Genesis chapter 1 all the way forward. And this is why he gave the temple. This has been his desire from the beginning. And this is why this passage is important. This is why this passage is important. Right? Because Jesus gets really angry about the temple. I mean, I think that's pretty clear from our text, right? I mean, he's not flipping tables for fun, right? He's upset. He's doing something there. Because God wants you to know him. And this is important, guys. God wants you to know him. And I think sometimes we miss that. We come to church, we sing songs, we do all of that. And like sometimes we just skip over that idea like God is some holy other up there somewhere and maybe he could like smite me or I'm supposed to feel really guilty or really bad about a bunch of things. So I come to church and maybe for a moment it makes me feel better and then I can go about my day and do what I want. In a way, guys, that's almost just like making the, making the church a den of thieves where it's like I can go out in my week, do whatever I want. When I feel guilty, I come to church and then everything's fine. That's not God's desire. God's desire is to know you and to be known by you. For you to experience his presence. Not just to feel guilty or feel bad about doing bad things or whatever. It's like, no. What God wants is you. He wants to know you, to live in relationship with you, to work in you and through you, to ex for us to experience who we were created to be. Right? To experience the divine. When I come to, come to Jesus, right? When I come to Jesus, I don't become less of myself. I become more of who I was created to be. God fills me in his, and makes me whole and complete. That's the picture. And so Jesus, we see, comes to solve this human need to be close to God, to be with God in a new way, in a better way, and in a lasting way. Now, there's the long introduction that hopefully helps to kind of put our passage in a context of God's intention, who we are, who God is, the story of God. Like I hope, you know, in, over the last 13 minutes, my clock says, um, we've gotten that. 
But I think before we can really even fully unpack the passage, there's a lot of really weird stuff going on. I mean, I, maybe I'm the only one. Maybe you guys are like, hey, Jesus cursing a fig tree seems normal to me. I don't know. Maybe that's you guys. But for me, like, I read that and I'm like, dude, like it says in the passage, it says clearly it was not the season for figs. Why is Jesus so mad at a fig tree for not having figs when it's not even the season for figs, right? Like, why does he curse? Like, it seems harsh. I mean, I don't know about you. I mean, it seems harsh, Right? Like, and then he goes into the temple and goes like all Hulk on the temple. Like, you know, like, like he's flipping tables. He's shooing people out. Like all this kind of stuff. Like what is going on? What is going on? Let's just spend a few minutes asking ourselves, what in the world is Jesus doing here? Why is he so harsh on a fig tree? And why is he incredible Hulk on the people in the temple? And finally, even there, what does prayer have to do with fig trees? Right? Because Jesus seems to shift gears at like a really unnatural rate, right? Like, like in a way that you and I would not shift those gears, right? As he's like, all of a sudden, Peter's like, hey, look at that, look at that fig tree you weathered. And Jesus is like, prayer, <laughs> you know? And you're like, wait, what? Like, what, what is happening? All right? So like, let's just kind of spend the next few minutes unpacking that. And then we're going to come back around everything we just said and hopefully tie a bow around it. All right? That's what we're going to do. So let's examine these questions. And I think we're going to see why this passage is profound and life-giving. So the first thing we need to see is, is the way Mark writes, okay? So the Bible is both a human book and a divine book. In other words, God inspired it, but humans wrote it down, okay? And Mark wrote it down differently than Matthew. And Matthew wrote it down differently than Luke, and Luke wrote it down differently than John. They record the same events, mostly. They record most, most of the same things, just come at it from a different angle. Just like if you and I both viewed the same thing, and somebody said, hey, can you explain that to me? We might, you know, bring out different elements of this. But the way Mark writes is very, very deliberate. Now, this is kind of silly, but this is how people describe it. And hopefully this will help you read the Bible. This is what's called a Mark and Sandwich. So if you are doing your personal Bible study or whatever, and, or you're in a group, and you're reading the Gospel of Mark, this is something to watch out for. And even in the Bible in general, this is something to watch out for. So what we have... Like, think about it from our passage, right? So we've got Mark 11, 12 to 14. Jesus curses a fig tree. Seems random enough, right? And then we find Mark 11, 15 to 19. Jesus goes into the temple, gets angry, and leaves. And then we come to verses 20 to 25. And in the first few verses there, Peter's like, hey, look at that fig tree. It's dead. <laughs> right? So do you notice there's kind of a, a, you know, a bun <laughs> and a meat, Right? So we've got fig tree, temple, fig tree. All right? So we've got to watch out for that because if all we do is read about the fig tree, we're going to miss the point. And if all we do is read about the cleansing of the temple, where Jesus goes into the temple and, and does what he does, we're going to miss the point because Mark wants us to see this all together, to interpret these two things together. All right? So Mark and Sandwich, there you go. That's for free. Uh, hopefully that helps you when you read the Bible on your own. All right, it's those little things that sometimes we don't, you know, when we read the Bible, sometimes it's just, I don't know about you guys, but like sometimes at least, you know, over the years I've learned better how to study the Bible, but you know, it is one of those things, it's a learned thing, right? We don't just automatically become experts on knowing how to read the Bible. It takes practice, okay? So there you go, Mark and Sandwich. So it is important then to see this within its, within its context. So let's go ahead and just spend a moment talking about uh, who Jesus was. Because again, this is going to help us to understand our passage. 
Jesus is our Savior. That's something we say in church, right? I mean, if you've ever been in church, you've probably heard that a thousand times or more, depending on how many times you've been in church, right? That Jesus is our Savior. Okay, so in that role, he is the one who brings us to God, right? He is the one. We come to the Father through Jesus the Son, okay? That's how we come. Hebrews talks about this, that Jesus is our mediator, and it uses this phrase that Jesus is our great high priest. So in that way, Jesus fulfills the role of a priest, okay? Now, Jesus is often called Jesus Christ, right? And that was a term for Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay, it's not his last name. <laughs> it means king. Ultimately, it means that Jesus is the king. And so we get this picture of Jesus as a priest, of Jesus as a king. But one of the ones that we often overlook is Jesus as a prophet. Okay, and remember I said the prophets came basically saying, here's what you've messed up. Let's fix it. Here's what you need to do now. And usually it was too late. Jesus is a prophet, right? And he comes and he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And he's like, guys, you have this all wrong. This is what you need to do. And the religious leaders go, yeah, no, thanks. We're going to kill you now, right? In a, in a very prophetic pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament, right? Okay, so Jesus fulfills this role as a prophet. And here's why we need to, we need to remember that Jesus is not only our savior. He is not only Lord or king. He is also a, he fulfills the role of a prophet, is that prophets do weird things. Prophets do weird things. Like if you ever read the Old Testament, like if you ever get in, most of us probably don't read the prophets because why? They're weird, okay? But I just want to like alert us to a few things that happen in the prophets just to kind of, maybe it'll help us see that maybe Jesus isn't just angry at a fig tree. Maybe Jesus is doing something. He is providing a, a lesson. How many of you guys are, are into art? right? Visual art, that's like a thing, you know, like a performance art is a thing. Think of like prophets as like performance artists, okay? Now, bear with me on that because you're like, he's crazy. Hold on. In Isaiah, Isaiah was told to prophesy against trusting in Egypt, okay? He was supposed to prophesy to the people of Israel, don't trust in Egypt. Why are you not to trust in Egypt? Because they're going to be taken over, they're going to fall. And do you know what, I, what Isaiah is told to do, guys? He's told for three years to walk around Israel naked. Like, your man is literally walking around, nothing on, going, hey, everybody. <laughs> like, I mean, what would happen if we saw a guy like that today? But in any case, that's Isaiah. Prophets do weird things. Okay, Jeremiah. This one just made me laugh. Jeremiah is told in, it's, uh, sorry, uh, Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah is told by God, go out and buy a really nice pair of linen, linen underpants. Put them on, wear them for a while, then take them off. Now bury them. Okay, that's weird, right? And then God says, oh, by the way, I want you to go unbury those underpants and carry them around. <laughs> like, so now he has to go unbury his dirty skivvies and like wave them around for everybody to see and be like, see this? This is your pride. And this is what God's going to do with it. It's weird. Prophets do weird stuff. I saved the best for last. Ezekiel. Or the worst for last? I feel sorry for this guy. Like if you've ever read Ezekiel, God asked him to do some really crazy stuff. 
right? Okay, so the first thing that God asks Ezekiel to do, this all happens in chapter 4, by the way. First thing God asks Ezekiel to do is he says, you know what? I am going to punish the people of Israel for 390 years. So here's what I want you to do. Go and lay on your side for 390 days on your left side. So just lay there and yell at everybody who walks by that God's going to punish them. Right? So there's, there he is, laying on his side for 390 days, sores and all. You know, because, like, I mean, bed sores happen, right? You lay on your side for that long, it's not going to go well. Right? He finishes that. He gets up. He goes, oh, thank goodness. Right? And then what happens? God says, you know what? And the people of Judah, I'm going to punish for 40 years. So uh, 40 days on your right side. Oh, come on, God. So yeah, 40 days on his, on his right side. Right? And then he's able to get up, and he's like, oh, thank goodness, that's finally over. <laughs> In the same chapter, okay? It goes from bad to worse because God then says, okay, you know what? We need to give these people another lesson because I'm going to tell them they're going into exile and things are not going to go well and they're going to be eating unclean bread. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go find some dried up human poo and then bake a loaf of bread on top of it. Honestly, guys, this is true. You can read this, Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel goes, God, please don't make me do that. Like... And you and I would be the same, right? He goes, like, God, please, please do not make me do this. And God goes, okay, fine. Just some cow poo. You can do that. And Ezekiel goes, okay, fine, I'll do that. that. That's way better. Like, do you know, like, I don't know which one of those things is worse. Whether, would I want to be, like, naked for three years or would I want to, like, cook? I mean, I think you probably would all prefer I cooked bread over cow poo. But, like, I'm trying to figure out in my mind what I would rather do. Um, but, like... But yeah, and that's the whole point. So what I'm saying is prophets do weird stuff. So when we find Jesus as a prophet cursing a fig tree, that's really, in comparison, not all that weird, right? But he curses this fig tree. Jesus is not mad at the fig tree. He's trying to tell us something through his actions, through what he is doing. It is performance art. He knows the season. Jesus isn't stupid, right? I mean, Jesus is like, divine. As Christians, we believe that, right? That Jesus is divine. He's not stupid. So he knows it's not the season for figs. Okay? And yet, he curses this fig tree. He's communicating a deliberate message through his actions. Okay? And then we find Jesus, in the very next passage, going into the temple. Right? He goes into the temple, and he is not losing his temper in the temple. And I think that's important to note. What Jesus does is calculated. It actually tells us that the day before, Jesus walked around at the temple. He looked around, and then he left. Okay? What Jesus does here is deliberate. So, like, let's get that out of our head for a moment that Jesus is like, you know, again, turns green, gets huge muscles, and just, you know, like, that's not what's going on. Jesus is not losing his temper at fig trees. He's not losing his temp temper at people in the temple. What he does, again, because we have the fig tree going, you know, on either side of this, we have to see what Jesus is doing there is deliberate. Okay? He's communicating a message. Jesus did not cleanse the entire temple. You guys, the temple is huge. Like, enormous. Like, Jesus isn't even actually in the temple proper. It's like in, like, the big courtyard of the temple that all of this is happening. There is, like, no way, at least humanly possible, that Jesus could cleanse the entire temple. I mean, he's one guy, and there's all these people, right? So, first off, he's not cleansing the entire temple. Second off, 
Jesus, as I said, is not stupid. And he knows the moment he leaves that temple, what are they all going to do? They're going to pick their money up off the ground. They're going to pick their tables up off the ground. They're going to get their animals back in. Everybody's going to file back in, back to normal. Right? So what is Jesus doing? He's not cleansing it. Because he knows the temple is about to be replaced. If you guys remember a chapter backwards in John 10, Jesus, or John 10, Mark 10, Jesus has already said he's going to die and set up something new. Like, right? That, like, he is going to be the ransom for many. Jesus, as a prophet, is critiquing the sacrificial system, bringing judgment on it and saying, no more. This is going to be done. This is going to be over. And the fig tree helps us to see this. It's not a cleansing. It is a judgment on the temple. Because he stops. Even if temporarily, he stops the sacrificial system. What was to be a house of prayer for all the nations has become a corrupt den for robbers. Just like the fig tree, it's something that looks healthy on the outside, but on the inside is corrupt. It's fruitless. It looks healthy on the outside, but it is fruitless. And therefore, its time is over. It's no longer going to be the place where God and people meet. And this is good news for you and for me. It'll be replaced by a new way. I want to come back to Jesus' words here. That the temple will be called a house of prayer. When Jesus starts speaking, seemingly unconnected about prayer, we have to see that Jesus has already talked about prayer, right? He said that his temple is going to be a house of prayer. So this is not Jesus on some random tangent. This is Jesus saying something really serious about the purpose of the temple, the place of the temple, and how that is now being replaced. And that now there will be a new place of prayer, a house of prayer. When Jesus starts speaking, it is not a random tangent, but it is connected to the rest of what just happened. So for Jews in that day, they would have seen the temple as a place where prayer was particularly effective. So if you wanted your prayers to really count, you would go to the temple. By contrast, though, Jesus is assuring his disciples as we read this, this passage here, right? Let's just read it. Jesus said, so this is verse 22. Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive you. Let's catch ourselves up here. So the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer. Jesus assures his disciples here, though, that the, effect, the effectiveness of prayer has nothing to do with the temple or its sacrifices. Right? So for, again, he's, he is breaking paradigms here. For the disciples and everybody else, they would have said, no, the temple is. It's that special place where we go and pray and God hears us extra specially. And Jesus says, no, it's not. You, when you pray and you pray in faith, God is listening and he answers. 
All right, this is connected to everything that has been said before. And when Jesus dies on the cross, access to God is not somehow closed off, but it is opened up for all. His death creates a new house of prayer. It creates a temple that the gospel writers will say is not made with hands and will not be counted with barriers. It will be without barriers or limitations. And so what we see then is this passage reveals to us the essence of the way Jesus replaces the temple. The way of Jesus is based on faith in God, right? That's what verse 22 says, have faith in God. And we find that in the kingdom of God, in the way of Jesus, nothing is impossible for God and that your prayers are heard. Now, all of this, I realize there's a lot to unpack in this and we're at 30 minutes. We're not gonna do it, you're welcome. But if you have questions later, we can, you know, that's something we can address over a cup of coffee or, or something like that, okay? So just bear with me. I understand there's a lot here. And as much as I want to take that, that off-road, we're not going to do it, okay? So come back to me if you've got, if you've got questions there. We see um, there in 23 and 24 that prayers are heard. And we see in verse 25 then that forgiveness is a defining characteristic of the way of Jesus, Jesus does not describe the power of faith that can move mountains, but rather the power of God who alone can do the impossible. And so, let's take what we've learned, right? All right, so that's, we've, just take a moment. Okay, we made it through the passage. We unpacked, hopefully, a lot of the weird stuff going on here. Now let's take everything that we've learned and let's come back to what we talked about at the beginning. You and I long for transcendence, right? We long for that experience, to know that there is something more, something bigger, something greater than ourselves. We long to know God. We long to be known by Him. And we long for this because God made us for this. You and I were made for this. And the temple was supposed to be that place. That was like just summarizing everything we've talked about. The temple was supposed to be that place, but it wasn't. It was no longer that place. It was a place instead of injustice and corruption. It was no longer the place where people could really come and truly experience God. It was a place that was marked by selfishness and human ambition. It was a place that made promises it could not keep. Because on the outside, it looked healthy, but on the inside, it produced no fruit. Jesus, throughout Mark, we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, has been taking the place of the temple during his ministry. Jesus has become that place, even in his ministry, where heaven and earth are meeting where the kingdom of God is breaking in. People are being healed. Brokenness is being restored. Dignity is being given to the lesser and the downtrodden. 
The kingdom of God is even being offered to the rich and the wealthy who seemingly have everything, right? Give up everything, sell all you have, and come follow me, Jesus says to the rich young ruler. Nobody is excluded. Everyone is welcome. And we see this in Jesus. It's the kingdom of God, guys. This is what's being offered. Jesus, throughout the whole gospel of Mark, is doing this. And here, it's almost as if it's beginning to come to a climax. Do you guys realize this is the last miracle that Jesus does? When he curses the fig tree, and it's like it's just like dead the next day, which doesn't happen, by the way. Like fig trees don't just get cursed and die the next day. That's not a thing, um, right? So it's a miracle. This is the last miracle in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, outside of the resurrection, of course. But like, um, <laughs> that's kind of a big one. Uh, but like, but as far as miracles Jesus performs on earth, I guess you know, like, you know what I mean. This is the last. This is the last one, and it's one every other miracle from from before this like brings life. And yet this one brings death. And I love the irony here because it's the death of the fig tree that points to the life that is offered to you and me. Jesus' death is where humankind can be reconciled to God. Jesus heals the sick. He restores people to society. He replaces the tables of the money changers where worshipers are being swindled and had to pay for atonement with his own table. And here in a moment, this is something in our church we do every week. We take communion. We take the Eucharist. We take the Lord's Supper. Whatever word, phrase you prefer for that. We take that every week. Because we don't want to forget. We don't want to forget that Jesus offers a table of his own. One that brings freedom. Living water. Jesus says. Come. All you who are thirsty and drink the finest wine. It's, it's Ribena, by the way. But drink, drink the finest of wines. Right? This, is, this is in the kingdom of God. And come and eat without any money. Come and feast, Jesus said, or well, Isaiah says. The cursing of the fig tree is, again, the last miracle but it points to the life that we have as a branch connected to the vine. We are connected to that vine through prayer. And so there are many things like this in our world. There are many things that tempt us away. So many things that promise us satisfaction and peace, yet leave us short. But Jesus is the true temple where heaven and earth meet fully. And we are told now that Jesus has ascended and the Holy Spirit has descended, right? Skipping forward, right, to the, to the end of the story, you know, right? Jesus died and he rose again and now he has ascended to the Father. And because of that, he has sent the Holy Spirit to live and to dwell in every single person who follows him. And because of that, you and I now are becoming a place where heaven and earth dwells together. We, as the church, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a moment. Just think about that for a moment. You guys, I mean, like, when you walk in the door, like, what are you thinking when you come in the door? Like, oh, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to sing some songs, I'm going to hear a sermon. Like, I mean, no shame there. I mean, like, look, I've been there as well. But it's those moments where I think about that that Paul actually says that what we're doing here is not just like listening to me blab on for 37 minutes, right? It's not just that. 
It's something bigger, that we are actually the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place as we gather together where heaven and earth meet. How would that change? How should that change the way we view church and what we're doing here right now? That's unbelievable. And when I think about that, church is not just some kind of action we do if we feel like getting up in the morning, like, right? It's something so much bigger and greater and, and amazing than that, right? And Paul will also use the language that you as an individual are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? He uses it in both forms in, in 1 Corinthians. So you too, because you have the Holy Spirit then, are a temple that becomes a place where heaven and earth meet. You, in a way, are like a mini Garden of Eden. The church should be like that. You are like that, where heaven and earth meet together and we mediate to the world what God is like. You are a place where heaven and earth meet. But it's not a self-centered thing. And that, I think, is really cool. It's not one of those like self-centered things. Jesus calls us to mediate his presence and fruit to the world. And Paul, in, in the letter to the Galatians, is going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think I got them all. Against such things, there, there is no law. Right? This is who we are created to be and what we were created to do. And because Jesus has made us the, that way, he has made us for us to live with him and the Father forever through the Spirit. And unlike the fig tree, and unlike the temple that Jesus here condemns, you and I are to be healthy bearers of fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit that overflows out of us and into the world. And through the Spirit, we cultivate a fruit in our life that has the potential to grow a garden. An kind of Edenic, is that a word? I don't know. I made it up if, I didn't, if it isn't, you know, I, but probably it is. I don't know. An Edenic garden that you and I have the opportunity to cultivate and to grow a garden with the Spirit. A garden full of life and peace. And because it is filled with the presence of God, it's the greatest garden we could ever imagine. It is a return to Eden. Now, I know our world is not perfect. And the church is not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. Right? But that's the goal. That's what we're moving towards. And one day, Jesus will return and that garden will come in its fullness, right? Revelation chapter 19, 20, 21, like that's the picture that we get, right? It's this picture of a garden and there are two trees of life on either side of the river. I mean, like it is like, we're going back to Genesis, right? That's the picture where God's presence is there fully. And so as we finish, we remember that. And we bear much fruit. But you and I are not always going to be great at bearing fruit. In fact, sometimes we're, we're going to mess up, right? And we're going to mess up big. And sometimes we're going to really upset people that are in our church or otherwise. We're going to frustrate them. We're going to make them mad. Like, I'm just going to say, I, I'm going to be an idiot sometimes. Like, it's going to happen. And I apologize in advance. Um, but... I'm not going to try to be, but it's probably just going to happen at some point. 
You know, if you journey in this church with, with me and everybody else long enough, somebody's going to make you upset. And this is why I think Jesus says, first, forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against. It assumes a lack of perfection, right? And so as we come to the table, as we come to communion, anybody who's a follower of Jesus is welcome to take that. I hope you will. I want you to. I want you to experience that, that proclamation of the gospel that we get through eating and drinking and remembering that we have received peace with God because of his death on the cross in our place and for our sin. And through that, we are to have peace with others. And when we don't, we ask for forgiveness from them, but we come to the table and we receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Not that it wasn't already there or something like that, but that there's you and I, we come to the table and we remember that we are forgiven by Jesus. And so...